Hi, I'm Graham. And I'm Chris. And we're the Podcast Boys. Uh, are we actually going there? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it, does have a, it does have a ring to it. Uh, welcome to another episode of Pet Shop Boys In Depth, the unofficial podcast for Pet Shop Boys fans all over the world. It's a great time to be a PSB fan. We're counting down to a brand new Pet Shop Boys album, the Dream World Tour is still in full swing, and we've even had the surprise reissue of Relentless. We're here to celebrate all of that, plus 40 years of Pet Shop Boys history, and we're really pleased that you're here to share it with us. We're complete amateurs, but we've really pushed ourselves to make these podcasts as good as we can make them. We're self-producing, recording live from Chris's garden shed. It's a low-budget affair, kind of like the home and dry video. Except there are no mice in my shed, thank you very much, and I actually suspect that even our meagre budget is slightly bigger. United by shared love of one band, can two amateurs like us produce a podcast befitting the world's greatest synth-pop duo? There's only one way to find out. Boys. Right, Graham. To kick off, I'm going to tell you the official Pet Shop Boys joke. How many Pet Shop Boys does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> Is it two? One to change the light bulb, one to sit around looking bored. Ah, you, you know it. You know it. <laughs> it's not very funny either, is it? And I'm not actually even sure that it's true. So we all know that whether they're making music, looking after the visuals, or putting on a show, Pet Shop Boys is quite often a team effort. So I'm sure changing light bulbs wouldn't be any different. But I propose let's talk musical collaborations. Excellent. I think their ability to pick the right collaborations is pretty much at the heart of their success. And there's just so many to go at. So I suspect this could perhaps be the first of many podcasts on this theme. So so where are you proposing that we start? Well, I propose we rewind all the way back to the beginning. Was Bobby O, so Bobby Orlando, their first true collaborator? He was the first musician to help them to bring their vision to life their first ever producer. Back then, they simply did what they've continued to do all the way through their career. They went to the person that made a record that they love and asked to make a record with them. In these early days, Neil and Chris each had quite different musical tastes, but they found common ground with high-energy music, with Neil often picking up 12-inch singles of Bobby O's that were sent to the Smash It's office for reviewing, and Chris becoming particularly obsessed by the track Passion by the group The Flirts, produced by Bobby O. Such a simple track, minimally perfect. He put that track on his Back to Mine compilation, yeah, thing, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. I mean, being sent records is such a great way to hear new music, certainly before the internet and streaming and so on. Yeah. When I edited my college music magazine, I was constantly sent free stuff. I think that's where my kind of slight addiction to acid jazz came in, just <laughs> by, by being sent stuff. I could never persuade Parlophone to send me anything, though, so that was never a good I, thing. I know that Neil talked about that was definitely one of the perks of working at Smash Hits was, was those free records. He could never be a nice big envelope arriving in your pigeonhole on a Monday morning. So let's just join the dots on the rest of Pet Shop Boys history. The 19th of August 81, Neil and Chris meet in that Kings Road hi-fi shop and begin writing songs straight away. In 82, they recorded their first demo tape, which included Jealousy. By this point, they're still calling themselves West End. And in 83, two years to the day since they first met, Neil ends up in New York interviewing Sting for Smash Hits and he meets Bobby O for the first time, who randomly just immediately suggested they should record a record together without hearing a note. Maybe I should give him a ring and see if he <laughs> record a record of those. They'd basically gone to the producer that made the records that they loved and, and popped the question. Besides Passion, Bobby O was just making so many good records at this time, which will no doubt have been on Neil and Chris's radar. One was She Has A Way, which he put out under his own name. Neil and Chris clearly loved that because some years later, Neil and Chris were even suggesting it as a single for Cicero to record, which he, he did, but that never came out. Tracks like Love Reaction and Shoot Your Shots, which Divine had recorded, and the track Try It, I'm In Love With A Married Man, which was recorded by O Romeo. Of course, they recorded that themselves a few years later, firstly for the John Peel session in 2002, but then again for release on Disco 3 the following year. And actually, the first plan that they had for that track was to cover it with Tina Turner, but that never happened either. I, I can't imagine what that would have sounded <laughs> like. I mean, Bobby O will have been one of the first to hear all those amazing songs, you know, to sing, Opportunities, Rent, and of course, West End Girls and One More Chance, which they ended up putting out under Bobby O's record label, Bobcat. The production style on those tracks, it's very Bobby O, isn't it? It's very high energy. You lots know, of cowbell. Lots of cowbell, <laughs> yeah. And a lot of the sounds that appear on other Bobby O yeah. records as well. It was big into recycling. 
Britain, even in the mid-80s. He <laughs> must have been at the forefront of that movement. <laughs> and then when Neil and Chris signed to EMI, EMI essentially struck a deal with Bobby O to the tune of $1 million, which freed them up from his contract to work with other people on the recordings, which would end up on their debut album, Please. I love that. It's so Austin Powers, isn't it? You can sort of mid-80s, it's like $1 million. <laughs> so if Passion was the gateway record which led them to working with Bobby O, mm-hmm. what are the other records that have led them to the other producers? Yeah. So I'm thinking Stephen Haig, Those Sounds of New York, mm-hmm. mid-80s. He's working with Malcolm McLaren on Madame Butterfly, that whole world-famous Supreme team and Hey DJ, that sort of noise, that sort of sound. So, I think Pet Shop Boys loved that sound and, yes. and wanted some of that for themselves, didn't they? Another producer was breaking through from the same scene at the same time was Shep Pettibone. They particularly loved the record that he'd done with Phyllis Nelson, I Like You. They went to Shep because they wanted that sound themselves and you can hear the result on a song like Heart, which definitely has shades of I Like You. They did exactly the same for Domino Dancing. They went to Luis A. Martinez, who worked with the girl group Expose, tracks like Point of No Return. That is so Domino Dancing when you listen to that song. It's got practically the same riff all the way through it. It's great when you can just go through your record collection and decide who you want to work with. That's right. I guess that's probably where they got to Trevor Horn as well, who seemed to be producing everything in the, yeah. in the 80s, particularly that Slave to the Rhythm track for Grace Jones and ABC's Look of Love and, and all the stuff that he was doing on Zang Tum Tum with yeah. Art of Noise and Frankie and so on. He was probably the, the Stephen Haig of English music at yeah. that point. Jumping a decade from there into the 90s, we've got Brothers in Rhythm and their Such a Good Feeling track, which inspired them to work with them on DJ Culture, Was It Worth It? And they obviously played quite an important part in Pet Shop Boys' 90s uh, era, you know, remixing tracks, including Go West. Yeah, I mean, they've done it all the way through their career. I'm thinking when they needed a hit single to go on pop art, they loved the track Loneliness by Tom Craft. They wanted some of that sound. They went to him and the result was flamboyant. And you think of Elysium as well. Now, Elysium isn't an obvious hip-hop record, but they went specifically to Andrew Dawson because his name is buried deep in the credits for Kanye West's 808s and Heartbreak, which was a record that they both really liked at the time, particularly the production style. So they've done it all the way through their career. They've pinpointed the artists whose sound they've liked and they've gone to them for some of that sound themselves. And thinking about inspirational records, a few years ago, I put together an inspiration Spotify playlist of all the songs which Neil and Chris mentioned in the further listening reissue booklets. And that adds up to, amazingly, nearly 300 tracks. It was shared on the Pet Shop Boys social media channels back in 2018. So if you're one of the, I think it's got about a thousand followers now. If you're one of those thousand people that have got that playlist saved in, into your Spotify playlist, then hello, that's, that's my playlist. If people follow us on social, then we'll resend that link yeah, and then we hopefully send that we, back round. We, you can have, add another thousand for that <laughs> list. <laughs> Neil actually mentioned the playlist in the 2022 edition of Annually, so it must be on his radar when he was pushing back against the idea that Pet Shop Boys should be name checking Sparks as an influence. He said they're not on the inspiration playlist, so they're definitely <laughs> not an influence. So he must have gone on there and, and checked to, <laughs> to see. Yeah. I, I don't think Sparks are an influence. I wonder if it's on Chris's playlist. I'll go and have a look. <laughs> So back to producers, Graham. Now, between 2016 and 2018, I had a, another of my side projects on the go. I started reaching out to and interviewing some of their key collaborators. So I conducted interviews with Stephen Haig, Julian Mendelssohn, Trevor Horn, and Harold Faltermeyer. The results are out there on the internet, but I, it's definitely a project that I'm going to come back to. And through it, I did glean some interesting snippets. For example, Stephen Haig told me that he wasn't a huge fan of It's a Sin, which is why they never recorded it for Please. So I think if Stephen had liked that track, it might have been on the debut. Still on It's a Sin, Julian Mendelssohn told me that he found the track a bit of a struggle because Neil and Chris wanted such an epic sound for that track. I find it amazing that he didn't like It's a Sin because he effectively did remake it with New Order with True Faith. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, when they did record it for Actually, they got Stephen Haig in to mix Julian's production because Julian's mix wasn't felt to be quite right. But on the flip, Julian mixed Stephen's production of What Have I Done to Deserve This? So <laughs> kind of quits in the end, I guess. And another snippet that Julian shared was that Always On My Mind only took them an afternoon to work on. 
what an afternoon that would have been. <laughs> we can barely record a podcast in an afternoon, let alone in the number one Christmas single. I asked him about remixing as well, and he said that Neil or Neil and Chris were always present when he was mixing a track, so they'd be in the booth with him contributing ideas. Julian also told me that he thought results would have been better with Neil singing rather than Liza, and that he found mixing behaviour hard work because of the sound quality of the recordings. I mean, I'm not sure there are any fans that would agree <laughs> that the sound recording on behaviour is subpar, would there? It describes it as hollow, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I was surprised to hear that as well. I guess it must have been the sound of those old machines <laughs> that Harold had. Trevor Horn described Neil as one of the great lyric writers of our generation, singling out Rent as equal to anything that he'd ever heard. Chris, he said, was a real dark horse, that he hides the fact that he's a really good musician, but with very definite opinions that he shares. He says they were always in the control booth while he was producing, approving and, and disapproving at every stage. That's not something that Trevor likes, really, is to have the artist in with him while he's doing his... He's um, fiddling. His, yeah, <laughs> his um, masterwork, working his magic. Also, check this out. Trevor told me about the time he and Neil and Chris first heard the orchestra on Left to Mind Devices at Abbey Road with the orchestra playing it. He says it all sounded great, and then when they hit the end of the song, so this big, long fade, it was awful. <laughs> Chris <laughs> particularly really hated what Richard Niles had arranged at this point they got a 60 piece orchestra there so Trevor had to go out in the moment with his red pen go through it all with him on the spot apparently it took nearly an hour to rewrite presumably while the orchestra were just uh, twiddling the thumbs and, and tuning up Trevor described it as one of the biggest emergencies he's ever had with a string section I mean you can't imagine that you could rewrite it in an I hour I just I, I don't understand how people write for orchestras it just seems the most complicated thing. It does sound like a stressful session. I'm sure we've both been under sort of stressful moments at work, but having an orchestra lightly twiddling away in the background <laughs> sort of would sound quite ominous, wouldn't it? I mean, it'd be nice to know what that original ending sounded like. I mean, it probably did sound awful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it was too over the top, uh, and it was more over the top than what they ended up with, then yeah, I wonder what that did sound like. Harold Faltermeyer talked a lot about the analogue gear that he used to create Behaviour's unique organic sound, and also, I was really pleased to learn that he still makes his own sausages <laughs> that always struck me as really incongruous where you've got this uh, you know producer with all this analog equipment who also had his own abattoir and made his own sausages well i know when you mentioned that before i felt like i needed to outdo that fact <laughs> i found that he once wrote a musical about the munich Oktoberfest. right so i mean i'm not sure you can get any more german than that i, do, I would like to hear that soundtrack but it is good to know that harold can definitely churn out the bangers <laughs> I didn't know we had any tumbleweed in this show. (laughs) So, sticking with musical collaborators, who are our favourite remixers that they've used? Mm. I know we both love those 80s mixers that kick-started everything off, but I do think that Frankie Knuckles version of Mm. I Want a Dog on Introspective did seem to be a taste of the things to come. I think by the time we get to the 90s, there's much more of a dance culture around, Mm. and those remixes have changed to sort of satisfy that demand. I'm thinking of David Morales's mix of So Hard definitely changing this shift from extended mixes and dance mixes to actual club mixes Mm. at that point. You know, They're definitely putting Pet Shop Boys in this club environment, Mm. There's drums, there's these tiny snatches of lyrics and are quite unapologetic in that really as well. And of course they work with Morales many times again, remixing Where the Streets Have No Name and and How Can You Expect to Be Taken Seriously. And then again on Nightlife Mm -hmm. producing I Don't Know What You Want But I Can't Give It Anymore and co-writing and producing New York City Boy. Some of those are amazing remixes. I, I love that club mix of... I don't know what you want. I know there's a few mixes knocking around of it, but mm. the Action Man mix, if anyone can, Action Man can, is just 11 minutes of joy. I love that mix. For me, Can You Forgive Her, the single release, was a bit of a watershed moment as well. This seemed to mark a moment where their remixes evolved even further with Rollo. Ironically, this was the same time as vinyl sales were starting to recede. We were buying, Pet Shop Wise fans were having to buy multiple CDs to get hold of these mixes rather than than vinyl versions. But I absolutely loved that Rollo mix of Can You Forgive Her? And at this point, these remixes were evolving quite a long way away from the original tracks. 
but brilliant nonetheless and taking that dance to disco refrain and, and repeating that of course they went on to work with Rollo again he remixed absolutely fabulous and they produced tracks on the nightlife album actually for those remixes so absolutely fabulous and can you forgive her he was working at this point with Rob Dugan who's a great musician in his own right do you remember the Club to Death track which was released in uh, mid 90s on Mo Wax Records I, I do it's a, that's a great record isn't it I love that I love certainly the introduction of it anyway that's right I really like the balance of remixes on Vera those Rollo mixes that you mentioned they're great yeah those Beatmasters mixes on Wouldn't Normally Do they're great Jam and Spoon's mix of Young Offender brilliant that's a great mix and the Coconut One mix of Yesterday When I Was Mad I love that mix as well there's some great mixes from that time yeah I love those mixes Coconut One was actually a guy called Gary Jones he's behind two stellar Pet Shop Boys remixes from the very era so yeah that Coconut One remix of Yesterday When I Was Mad a big full on synth riffs very 90s It'd be slightly dated. No, me all over that. I love that. I I, I love it as well. It still sounds great. And he also was behind the Voxygen mix of I Wouldn't Normally Do This Kind of Thing. That mix has got a great intro. And they actually played that version when they headlined Creamfields. That's a bit of a one-off performance of that particular mix. And I guess talking of pseudonyms, what about Ian Masterman and David Green, better known as Belfast-based trouser enthusiasts? Yes. They delivered three storming mixes during bilingual era. They've got such a unique sound, this way that they manipulate vocal samples, play them backwards, and they come up with these great titles as well. Good God, yeah. (laughs) So the discoteca is the trouser enthusiasts adventures beyond the stellar empire mix amazing a red letter day which is the trouser autoerotic decapitation mix lovely uh, and also they did two so the second one is the trouser enthusiasts congo dongo dubstrumental <laughs> i mean these i mean you cannot lo- <laughs> they, they, they must spend an afternoon working on the mix and then go to the pub and then come back and spend another three hours <laughs> working out what the title will be except of course on somewhere which was the trouser enthusiasts mix I think they must have run out of inspiration <laughs> by that point. Yeah, or printering. <laughs> they also put out some corking remixes for other artists. So I'm thinking St. Etienne, Kylie Minogue. In fact, even this year, they remixed Danny Minogue's We Could Be The One, which is as good as anything they've ever done as far as I'm concerned. That's a fantastic mix. Yeah, I mean, they've just got so many great mixes and, and obviously so many great titles. I just love how they rip the songs apart, slow them down, put them back together again and, and are unashamedly 10 minutes That's plus right. long. You know, I love that. My last call out is for David Jackson. I thought his two remixes of I Don't Wanna were fantastic. He's exceptionally young, isn't he? A massive talent. So they're still seeking out new talent and still commissioning great remixes. Yeah, I think his dad was tweeting at the time that it was his son's big break. Mm. I mean, you never want to force your children into any sort of career that they're not interested in, but having a child that ends up remixing Pet Shop Boys tracks has got to be a parenting (laughs) goal, hasn't it? Achieved only by Mr Jackson at this point. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) But looking back, Graham, over all those names, so producers and remixers, I think it's time to call out an elephant in the room. So Pet Shop Boys must have worked with around, and I've done some fag packet maths here. (laughs) Good, good. I reckon around 170 producers and remixers. Wow. But you could count the number of women on that list on one hand. It definitely looks like a case of music for boys, doesn't it? Yeah, I didn't realise that was a manifesto. (laughs) I'm sure it's not. Tracy Young remixed I Don't Know What You Want, which is a brilliant version. Little Boots remixed Love is a Bourgeois Construct. Uh, We know Xenomania, made up of men and women. But, you know, I'm not sure that I can think of too many beyond that. Even Tracy and Sharon is actually Tom Stefan. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is one for Ralph Moore. So he's Pet Shop Boys remix consultant. I think he needs to consider this factor for the next batch of single releases. No, I do too. I mean, it's not as though there aren't loads of amazing female producers around because there are. So I'm thinking The Blessing Madonna. I love her track We've Lost Dancing, which she released with Fred again. Of course, she worked on Dua Lipa's Club Future Nostalgia album as well. And we know she's been in the studio with Neil. Yes, indeed. Um, She was quoted saying, I'm so grateful for another day writing music with such a lovely person. So it does seem as though that's maybe another collaboration that's in the works. There's also, so I've got a little list here, Graham, just of some current favourites that I'd recommend. So Helena Hoff from Hamburg, who does this kind of brilliant stripped down techno and electro. Kelly Lee Owens, she's a Welsh electronic producer. Love her track, Jeanette, particularly. If you want something more uplifting, 
There's Toki Monster. Uh, she's a Korean-American producer, DJ, remix the likes of Duran Duran and Beck. I particularly love her great remix of Manchild that she's done. And then finally, Logic 1000, that's Australian musician Samantha Poulter. She's done great remixes for the likes of Groove Armada, Orbital and Flume. I'd like to say that's off the top of my head. It's not <laughs> off the top of my head. <laughs> but I do think there's lots of acts at the moment are getting some great female artists yeah, to work well, on this. That, that looks like that's my research search for the next week sorted i'm looking forward to you making the playlist for this episode yeah, we definitely. can go through the, some of those i mean we've just scratched the surface there haven't we they've got a fantastic back catalogue of remixes sadly not all of them available on streaming services i'd love more of them to be available if they want a box set curating i'm happy to offer my services <laughs> <laughs> i've got a great track listing worked out for a career spanning six cd set if people still buy cds <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a better balance in terms of gender split when it comes to their on-stage collaborators, yeah. though. So you look there and the catalogue's rich with female icons. So we've got Dusty, Liza, Patsy, Shirley, Kylie, Tina, Yoko, Madonna. It's yep. not a bad list. No, you're right. And on the, on the other side, Elton, Bowie, Robbie, Brandon, Rufus, Johnny, Bernard, Cicero... It is amusing, though, isn't it, how many of those uh, collaborators can be abbreviated just to one name and you know immediately who they are. That's a measure of how iconic these people are and they all essentially want a piece of the Pet Shop Boys pie. But I'd like to call out one of what I'm going to claim is their great forgotten collaborations. So before Liza, before Patsy, before even Dusty. So Helena Springs is the name of the lady with the fantastic voice that sings on West End Girls. She also sings on Violence and also on You Know Where You Went Wrong, which itself was Neil and Chris essentially trying to rewrite West End Girls and use all of the same ingredients, hence Helena Springs being back on there as well. So I've got her here on Wikipedia. So her, her description is... Helena Lessandrello, known professionally as Helena Springs, born 1961, was an American singer. The singer first sang as a backup vocalist for Bob Dylan in 1978, aged 17, and co-wrote 19 songs with him, more than any of his other collaborators. And after that, she signed with Arista Records as a solo artist. And while recording with Neil and Chris, she asked if they could write a song together. So one Sunday afternoon, that's exactly what happened. And the song that they wrote was called A New Love, Nothing came of it originally, so Pet Shop Boys reworked it as a new life with some different lyrics and put it out as the B-side to What Have I Done to Deserve This? So you've got maybe the first two collaborations back-to-back, not forgetting, of course, that What Have I Done to Deserve This is also a co-write. And I think Helena's own version came out shortly afterwards, didn't it? Yeah, it's, um, it's well worth a listen if you haven't heard it before. It's quite different, particularly the production style isn't particularly Pet Shop Boys, but the majority of the lyrics are there and it's well worth a listen. And I'm going to claim that's their first forgotten (laughs) collaboration. (laughs) Now, I know Pet Shop Boys' imperial phase is often discussed, but I think they also had an imperial phase for their collaborations, their 80s collaborations were particularly exceptional so Patsy, Dusty, Liza plus Electronic. I had to remind myself of the timeline here they were just so busy around this time so much output so so the actually era effectively ended in March 88 when they released Heart. Yeah. Eighth Wonders I'm Not Scared was released just the month before that. Yeah. So those tracks were possibly in the charts at the same time. They must have been and It's amazing, isn't it? So basically, between Actually and Behaviour, they also put out Introspective, an Eighth Wonder single, half a Dusty album, and a full Lizer album, plus It Couldn't Happen Here, a one-off number one single in Always On My Mind, their (laughs) first tour, and the first fruits of the electronic collaboration. That's busy, isn't it? It's busy. (laughs) I mean, Results is basically that missing 1989 album, isn't it? Yeah. So we've got Please in 86... Actually, in 87, Introspective 88, Results fills that 89 gap, and then Behaviour in 1990 just happens to have a different vocalist. Yeah, and if Julian Mendelssohn had had his way, it would have been a a Neil album anyway. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Let's come back to Results another time so we can do it justice, but I would like to chat about Reputation, which came out in June 1990, so pretty much three years after Dusty Springfield came back with What Have I Done to Deserve This?, 
Reputation was Dusty's first album in eight years and her first hit album in considerably longer. It's got ten tracks, five produced by Pet Shop Boys and Julian Mendelssohn, all making up the B-side, and apparently Neil and Chris asked for all of their tracks to be grouped together in that way. The other tracks on the album were produced by Andy Richards, who worked on Always On My Mind and Heart. Dan Hartman, famous himself for performing disco classics like Relight My Fire and Instant Replay. And Paulo Duffy, maybe best known for his work with Swing Out Sister and Amy Winehouse. I do love that first Swing Out Sister album, It's Better To Travel. It's a bit of a synth classic. Yeah, I love that album as well. It's that it's that Manchester Factory Records heritage that we keep uh-huh. we keep coming back to and keep kind of sneaking to our podcast, yeah. isn't it? Andy Connell used to be in a certain ratio and Corinne Jury sang on their song Bootsy, but enough about trying to crowbar a certain ratio into all our <laughs> podcasts. Uh, we digress because we're discussing reputation. Yeah, so now Pet Shop Boys, half of the album, the B-side, is obviously the best. I do like the other half as well, especially Arrested by You, which is the Paulo Duffy track, and Send It To Me, which is a Dan Hartman one. do wonder if, in hindsight, if they could have had the time again, Neil and Chris maybe would have wished that they'd done the full album, but with a schedule like that, clearly that would have been pushing things a little. I mean, I'm sure, yeah. So that Pet Shop Boy side has got five tracks on there. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Private, Daydreaming, Nothing Has Been Proved, I Want To Stay Here and Occupy Your Mind. Four of those were originals. Yeah. And the fifth one, I Want to Stay Here, is a cover of a song by Carole King and Jerry Goffin. Yeah. First released by Stephen Eddy in 1963. So right back from that time when Dusty's career was really just starting off. Two of them, Nothing Has Been Proved and In Private, were inspired by the Profumo Affair, as documented in the film Scandal. Yeah. That film's producer, Stephen Woolley, asked Pet Shop Boys to contribute a song for the soundtrack. Nothing Has Been Proved was based on an old song Neil had already written, just lying around. That's right, <laughs> just a whole song that soundtracked exactly yeah. that uh, yeah, story I, I, anyway. It's funny that you mentioned that. I've got that here in this box <laughs> here, yeah. In private, however, rejected. <laughs> well, you can't have it all. No. Uh, nothing Has Been Proved is my, my favourite of the two, not that I would have rejected in private, but... Uh, Thinking about that orchestral arrangement by Angelo Badalamenti is fantastic. Of course, Dusty was already famous back in 1963 at the time of the Profumo Affair. And I guess this was the first of two collaborations with film producer Stephen Woolley. He also produced The Crying Game, which Pet Shop Boys curated the soundtrack for and put out on their own spaghetti label in 1992. Of course, Pet Shop Boys have gone on to perform their own version of Nothing Has Been Proved. So they performed it on the 1989 tour, quite a stripped back version. And it's also on the Concrete Live album. And their original demo for Dusty is on the introspective further listening disc. And of course, they recorded their own version of In Private as a duet with Elton John. Originally intended for pop art, apparently Elton phoned them up and suggested this as an idea. Yeah, so I've got uh, I've got a great idea for a single for you for your greatest hits with, with me on it. <laughs> well, apparently Parlophone didn't think that it worked as a single, so it didn't really emerge until a few years later. Yeah, uh, I think it turns upon fundamentalism and then as a B side to minimal. Yeah, that's right. But I think the standout reputation tracks for me are Daydreaming and Occupy Your Mind. I'd love to hear Pet Shop Boys versions of these. On Daydreaming, Dusty even raps. There's a fantastic 12-inch mix, which Julian Mendelssohn told me was one of his favourite mixes that he'd ever done. And Occupy Your Mind is based on that short Acid House snippet that Chris was playing uh, on some of the later dates of the 1989 tour. Sandwiched between Domino Dancing and King's Cross. Uh, yeah. I, th- I think it was put in there to uh, to give Neil a little bit more time to get changed. Uh, apparently it was originally intended to be a record with the rave organiser Sunrise, but it ended up morphing into this Dusty track. I mean, you can't imagine that Dusty's doing Acid House can you? Chris has said that he would have liked Dusty to have put those out as a double A side, so Daydreaming and Occupy Your Mind. Maybe these are just a pair of lost come down classics. So I reckon Electronic is their final Imperial collaboration. And historically, we've always been led to believe that it's only the album track Patience of a Saint which features both Neil and Chris. But in 2021, Johnny Marr revealed some interesting info to Music Radar magazine, which is that Chris actually wrote the baseline for getting away with it. The full story is that Neil and Chris travelled up to visit Manchester's famous Hacienda nightclub for the first time with Bernard and Johnny and do some songwriting on the side at the same time. So what an amazing moment in pop that night out must have been. 
can you imagine going to the Hacienda and seeing Neil and Chris and Bernard and Johnny there in the corner or on the dance floor? <laughs> have, you, have you ever been to the Hacienda, Graham? Yeah, I went to the In the City Rob Records event when they were showcasing bands like Sub Sub, who became Doves and Flamingos. Yeah. It was in the height of all the gun and gang issues, yeah. so, it, so it probably wasn't quite the venue that it was at the end of the 80s, though, I don't think. Probably just, just before it closed. <laughs> it was in those sort of final days, I think. It did look like nothing else, though, didn't it? You know, those striped pillars and the bollards around the dance floor. And it was also back in the day when you could get a train back from Manchester after 10 o'clock at night as well, so that always <laughs> helped going. <laughs> yeah, I had a little spate of visiting the Hacienda occasionally over kind of 94, 95. During that period over the summers, I did some work experience on the back of my university course for New Order's management office. And those offices were just upstairs from the Hacienda, so that kind of gave rise to some nights out, uh, including memorably one night in the company of Marquis Smith. Can you imagine going drinking with Marquis Smith from the fall? I I, I can't imagine drinking, and I can't imagine Marquis Smith in the Hacienda either. I swear, he was there. I think he was something of a a regular in the Hacienda. And also, I remember sharing a cab with his ex-wife, Bricks, on the same night as well. I I sat at a table once with Bricksmith. Yeah, well, I sat next to her, and Courtney Love at the Phoenix Festival and a, a one year old Frances Bean as well just think if she knew that she'd been in the company of both Graham <laughs> <laughs> and Chris from the Pet Shop possibly Boys around about the same time know, as well that's, yeah that's well, incredible that's, uh, and who knew that two of us would have a Bricksmith story uh, that's right <laughs> I do have a piece of Hacienda memorabilia when they took the club down obviously it's flats now but uh, they sold off a, a lot of the pieces of the dance floor and lots of bits of memorabilia from the club i bought a brick so i've got a blue hacienda oh, nice. brick as a bit of a keep safe that's propping a door open upstairs <laughs> at, at, at the moment so going back to that famous date in manchester where neil and chris met with bernard and johnny johnny wrote some music in advance chords and a melody so they got something to work with and in the music radar interview johnny says I think Neil very quickly had the lyrical hook and he was going to go away and write the words. So within probably about 20 minutes, we started working on it. And then Bernard came up with the verse chords and I remember Chris doing the bass line and then Neil arranging it. So all four of us just really kind of got in with the ingredients and we had this backing track. And then we all went out to the Hacienda, as you do. (laughs) And the next day we reconvened at some point in the afternoon, wrote a second song together, The Patience of a Saint, which started off as Chris's idea with a dreamy, suspended sort of come-down kind of atmosphere to it. So basically, Patience of a Saint must be the hangover. (laughs) Yeah, that is the (laughs) come-down song. So I think we can now safely consider getting away with it, a true Pet Shop Boys collaboration. It's not just Neil on the track. You've got Chris's musical DNA there as well. Now, I don't think you get a songwriting credit for a bass line. They're deemed outside of copyright, which must explain why it's purely credited to Sumner, Ma and Tennant. I do wonder why Chris wasn't more roundly credited for the part that he played at the time. You know, it wasn't in the video for the song, clearly, or the press shots. This was very definitely just the three of them. Maybe that was to make sure that Electronic was seen as a Bernard and Johnny thing rather than a Pet Shop Boys thing because two Pet Shop Boys and two Electronic would kind of tip the balance a bit, wouldn't it? But I do wonder how Chris felt about that. Yeah, it's just it's strange though, isn't it? I mean, why he wouldn't want to be part of the first super group of the 90s? Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe that's the reason. Maybe <laughs> maybe he just didn't want the publicity. One didn't want to be associated with it. They thought it was perhaps cooler not to be on Under the Radar. I mean, and to further seal this as a Pet Shop Boys collaboration, Neil and Chris have played the track live four times with Electronic. So twice in Los Angeles. You remember when they yeah. played these early dates as guests of Depeche Mode, well ahead of any album release. Once at Cities in the Park Festival, held in Manchester's Heaton Park, that was August 91. Once at London's Wembley Hall in December 91. And that, as things stand, was Electronic's last ever live gig. There they performed three tracks, so Patience of a Saint, Getting Away With It, and, check this, even Disappointed. Disappointed with Chris playing. So, you know, 
I don't think he really cares <laughs> who, who wrote these up, or he's quite happy to bowl up and uh, perform on them. So, is that enough for us to claim Disappointed is a bona fide Pet Shop yeah, Boys no, collaboration I would say so, too? Definitely, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, Bernard sung Disappointed on the other nights of the tour, which must have been equally interesting. Disappointed, but with a Bernard on vocals. Yeah, no, absolutely. Did you see any of those dates, Graham? Oh, this is one of my worst moments ever. Oh, no. What, <laughs> sorry, what have I. Uh, <laughs> Well, I was due to go to Cities in the Park. I had a ticket, uh, but unfortunately, or, or graciously, depending on your, your point of view, <laughs> I was asked to be godfather to my cousin Bradley uh, well. uh, on that day. I can remember being rung up and thinking, I know what that date is. I know what that date is. Yes. And and it, and it was. I ended up... Bradley <laughs> won through, did he? Yes, yeah. We, we, I, I did all the logistics of trying to work out what time I could leave, what time I'd need to be there, and it just, it just didn't it just didn't work. So I ended up giving up my ticket to my friend Robert, who he just couldn't wait to tell me that Neil and Chris had come on stage to play with them. <laughs> 32 years ago, that was, and I'm still kind of annoyed that they couldn't push the christening back a week. Oh, now, I am sorry to hear that, Graham. Yourself, have you uh, been there? Well, I was there. Oh. Uh, it was my first, so that was my first, <laughs> first ever festival. Do you remember it was held in honour of Martin Hammett, yes, the New Order yes, yeah. and Joy Division producer? The first day, headlined by The Wonder Stuff. I loved the Wonder Stuff at the time. Yeah, I did as well. Uh, their Never Loved Elvis album had come out kind of earlier in the year. Size of a Cow, that was the big hit, wasn't it? They were fantastic. Also, electronic luminaries such as OMD, Cabaret Voltaire, and maybe this is unsurprising for a Manchester festival, The Fall. Of course. <laughs> Your friend Mark. <laughs> My friend Mark. <laughs> day two, though, that was the Factory Records day. Happy Mondays headlined. They were kind of at the peak of their powers on the back of Pills and Frills and Belly Aches, which had come out the previous year. Your Friends, A Certain Ratio, yeah. I'm afraid you, you missed them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Revenge, which was Peter Hook's solo project. 808 State, brilliant. And even Della Sol were on the bill. Wow. Tony Wilson was the compare. Now, Electronic were second to last before the Mondays. Key thing I remember, Neil wore shorts. <sighs> <laughs> well, now it's even more reasons why. I should be there. <laughs> Is that the only time he's worn shorts on stage? Possibly, yeah. I think it might be. Chris was in kind of the full discography get up. Disappointingly, they only played Getting Away with It, so no patience of a saint. Oh, maybe that feel I feel slightly better. Than that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You only missed the one track. <laughs> The festival highlights, Graham, you're pleased to know, they were released on video. And if you look really closely, you can see me in the crowd in some <laughs> of the footage. It was a fantastic weekend. Well, there's also footage of me at a christening, if you're interested. <laughs> <laughs> course, Pet Shop Boys' collaborative relationship with Bernard Sumner stretches beyond electronic, culminating in 2022's joint unity tour in Canada and the US with New Order. Each night, the two bands took it in turns to headline. I'd be surprised if we didn't see more unity tour dates in the future. Now, between gigs, I wonder if Bernard ever ribs Neil about some of those lukewarm reviews he gave to New Order's early albums, which when he was at Smash Hit, so he gave their second album, which was Power, Corruption and Lies, just six and a half out of ten. He said, they've made a brace of brilliant singles and surprisingly dull LPs. I'm still looking forward to their greatest hits. That greatest hits was substance though, wasn't it? Yeah, that is quite a greatest hit, isn't it? <laughs> and to be honest, I think he was right about those early albums. Oh, I do like Power, Corruption and Lies. Well, I'm, a, I'm a low life man myself. Um, low life's good. <laughs> low life's good. <laughs> It was a shame the two bands didn't come together for a live collaboration, though, on the tour, wasn't it? Yeah, that didn't happen, did it? So apparently Chris suggested World in Motion. Don't know how serious <laughs> he was about that, but it didn't happen in the end. And, of course, it would have meant the other band hanging around for two hours each night for the other band's encore, for them to kind of come together for that performance. But we were denied the prospect of Bernard or, or maybe even Gillian duetting on What Have I Done to Deserve This or Dreamland. <laughs> Bernard in one of Ollie's Diamante cat suits. <laughs> Oh, it's quite the image, isn't it? <laughs> but while we're here, let's discuss some of the other guest artists that have sung What Have I Done to Deserve This Live with Neil. So there aren't too many, and I'm sure that's because Neil and Chris are quite sensitive to the fact that it's Dusty's song, you know? Yeah, no, I'm sure it is, yeah. I mean, so assuming we're not including Barbara Windsor's lip-syncing in It Couldn't Happen Here. <laughs> OK. Uh, first up, we're back to the 29th of April 2000, when they played it live with Melissa Etheridge. Yes. As part of 
their short set at the Equality Rocks event, staged at Washington's RFK Stadium. Melissa is an American singer-songwriter and guitar player. She did a good job. Apparently she thought the ghost of Dusty was with them <laughs> because the, the equipment kept cutting in and out during rehearsal. Not sure I quite blame Dusty Springfield for, for that. Do you remember this set, though? So Pet Shop Boys opened with a cover version of an old disco tune, which was Homosexuality by Modern Rocketry. I think it's the only performance of that song that they've ever given. It's actually a belting version. Really makes the most of those male backing vocals, which were part of the touring setup at that time. Yeah, it's that high energy sort That's of sound right. that we were talking about earlier, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, very much so. So next up, and just a couple of months later, Catatonia's Keris Matthews sang it in their first ever Glastonbury performance. Yeah. Yeah, now this was 2000. I, I was in the crowd for this one as well, I'm afraid, Graham. Um, so, <laughs> my first ever Glastonbury appearance as well. <laughs> so, this was the pyramid stage that they were on. It was a Saturday night. They were on just before Travis headlined. You know, they call that the sunset slot, yeah. don't they? Back then, Glastonbury wasn't quite the modern love fest that it is today. My memory is that Travis's audience weren't overly appreciative of, of Pet Shop Boys. Well, maybe they were just getting their own back. Uh, I went to see Travis in Newcastle and um, and was less less than complimentary about them, ah. <laughs> uh, which didn't go down too well with the people that was around me at the time at the concert. <laughs> so, yeah, they were definitely... Uh, getting their own back on there I think at that point I'm not really sure that Pet Shop Boys had totally got the hand of sequence in a great festival set at this point so they opened with all seven minutes of the remix of I Don't Know What You Want but I Can't Give It Anymore <laughs> Chris sang Paninero they even played Positive Role Model I remember rumours that Barry White was going to join them on stage which must have been because obviously Positive Role Model has got that riff from your the first the last My Everything so to me that's not really a set that's kind of built on back to back crowd pleasers I remember Bowie headlined on the Sunday night I mean, that was brilliant. Uh, I was hoping Neil and Chris would stick around to join him for Hello Space Boy, but that wasn't to be. He was fantastic. That was a great show. The field was absolutely rammed. Anyway, back to what have I done to deserve this. Keris did a good job. Only messed up the odd word, but forgiven for that. We've got a jump of about nine years until we get our next duetta. Mm-hmm. So 2009 and their Brit Awards Outstanding Contribution Award. Who do you get? Well, Lady Gaga joined them on stage to take on Dusty's part. Yeah. And of course, we've got a second collaboration in that performance because Brandon Flowers comes on stage and duetted on It's a Sin. Yeah. And then everybody comes on and does West End Girls in the end. So you get plenty of collaboration in that. At first, they'd assumed that Girls Aloud would join them on stage for What Have I Done to Deserve This? Because clearly this was the yes period on the back of them recording with Xenomania. But Girls Aloud were already on the show so you know it wouldn't have been as exciting <laughs> for them to come on and perform with Pet Shop Boys so they looked elsewhere but Lady Gaga was excellent dressed as a teapot of course suitably English <laughs> and then now check this Graham so when they played Glastonbury for the second time this was 2010 when they headlined the other stage according to Classic FM Neil had approached the manager of Susan Boyle <laughs> <laughs> so Susan Boyle was the Britain's Got Talent finalist. And the idea was that Susan would come on and duet with Neil on what have I done to deserve this. But in the end, her management decided it would be a bad idea and that Subo might find (laughs) Glastonbury a bit weird if she'd not been before. So, of course, they went with that pandemonium virtual Dusty instead. But what a lost collaboration that (laughs) would have been, Graham. I actually do have a, a guilty pleasure in that I do like Susan Boyle's version of Wild Horses. Have you uh, have you heard that? You, you do know that you've just said that publicly, don't you? <laughs> you, you know that we have listeners. You, you have grasped the concept of a podcast. <laughs> this is not just me and you chatting in a shed. There are people it's listening to that. It's a good version. I'll, I'll put it on the playlist. I'll put it on the playlist. And then I remember in 2015, Pet Shop Boys performed alongside the K-pop girl group FX at the Mnet Asia Music Awards in Hong Kong. They duetted on What Have I Done to Deserve This as well as vocal. Uh-huh. And they all wore those black plastic bendy straw outfits from the electric tour and vocal sleeve. I said, that, is this why you can't get plastic straws anymore? <laughs> Maybe they use them all in that, in, in that performance. Yeah. They'd have to wear cardboard ones now, uh, wouldn't they? That's right, you wouldn't get away with the plastic straws, <laughs> would you? <laughs> 
Finally, Beverly Knight sang What Have I Done to Deserve This with them at their Radio 2 Hyde Park headline appearance in 2019. And I think this might be my favourite guest spot of, of them all. Now, Graham, I was there. I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I wasn't I'm, there. No, <laughs> I'm saying that kind of apologetically now because I don't want you to it think this. A, it, just a list of <laughs> things I went to and you didn't. It does feel it's starting to become that, isn't <laughs> but, it? But I know that you will want to know what it definitely, was like, definitely, like yeah. to be there. Yeah. So it was a fantastic day. Although there were some dodgy Radio 2 kind of supporting acts. It was very Westlife. That's right. Status quo. Status quo, yeah. So I missed all of these. Um, Susan Boyle not on there for you. No, Susan Boyle. (laughs) Bananarama. I wish I'd seen Bananarama. Yeah, I'd seen that. But basically, my friend Steph and I spent the day drinking elsewhere in the the London (laughs) sunshine and and then balled up for, for Pet Shop Boys. Beverly's voice, you, you know, you will have seen it on the TV performance, yeah. was was amazing on the track. She was a total star. And apparently they asked Beverly Knight to perform on this song with them because they were impressed with the version of I'm Every Woman that she'd sung at a Trevor Horn concert earlier in the year. It was a unique show, so it was based on the Super Show, but also with elements of their Brit Awards performance and, and also Pandemonium. I remember they had those kind of same rotating platforms, those discs for the intro but Chris's disc didn't revolve all the way round, so he had to jump off himself when it got stuck halfway. <laughs> Pet Shop Boys live intros are, are fraught with peril, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. Maybe they should, for the next toy, if they could just please just walk on stage <laughs> from the left or from the right or whatever, just keep it simple and it would be better for all of our nerves, <laughs> won't it? Finally, I think we should pay tribute to Claire Ushima, who really has made that song her own every night on the Dreamworld tour as well, coming down to the front of the stage and singing it with Neil. She's in many ways 2023's answer to Susan Boyle <laughs> how offensive is that <laughs> I've just said something really nice <laughs> you're listening to in it, it boys but if there's one night Graham that absolutely screams PSB collaborations it was 8th of May 2006 at London's Mermaid Theatre so this was the exclusive concert for Radio 2 Sold On Song programme. 600 people were invited, mostly competition winners. I got in, sorry Graham, I was there. <laughs> I got in as the guest of a friend that, that works for the BBC and I didn't find out that I'd got a place until lunchtime that day so it was the case of quickly leaving work and making my excuses <laughs> and getting on that train down and, and you know I only just got there in time as things worked out. Well this slightly redeems some of your lost Susan Boyle credibility i think i've realized ironically doing a collaboration podcast that i have a strict no collaborations concert policy i clearly don't go to any concerts where they do collaborations (laughs) this is the concert that became concrete live album is yeah that's right so you had trevor horn as the musical director and the band he put together was basically a who's who of all of his usual collaborators so you've got Anne dudley on piano and keyboards steve lipson on guitar 10cc's lol cream on backing vocals sally bradshaw the opera singer from left to main devices was there and psb stalwart sylvia mason james on backing vocals as well plus of course the mammoth 60 piece bbc Mm. concert orchestra that's quite a musical ensemble and that's before you get the special guest singers so rufus wainwright who sang on casanova in hell Francis Barber, who sang on Friendly Fire, and Robbie Williams, who sang Jealousy as well, which he's always said was one of his favourite songs. Those versions are fantastic, aren't they? I do like that album. It's uh, it's really great, and they just sing them so well. So what do you remember from the night? Well, if that wasn't enough superstars, I also found that I was sitting in front of Elton John, <laughs> <laughs> another of their serial collaborators, and Janet Street Porter. Have you made this up? This You were actually there. This is not just <laughs> no, some sorry, sort of... I promise. Uh... <laughs> I promise. <laughs> and obviously, you've, you've heard the concert. It was an amazing yeah. experience. A legend-heavy show, as Neil called it. A fantastic set list which showcased the breadth of songs that they'd had arranged for orchestra plus it's a sin and west end girls which obviously never originally featured an orchestra but had had special arrangements done there were some issues with the sound on the night maybe the balance between the orchestra and the band with the real drummer and the electronics which must have been a bit of a nightmare to live mix i remember the bass sound on numb really overloading but the guests sounded superb robbie was very much the showman coming out flexing his muscles to jealousy's massive intro he actually fluffed the words which isn't evident from the recording so i do think that trevor must have had him in to do some overdubs neil was quite the host with his amusing quips between songs and 
and anecdotes and his voice sounded brilliant too. I think those arrangements are fantastic and, and of course they did recycle them again for the show at the Royal Albert Hall which is a concert that I did go to. Yes, you did make that one, didn't you? <laughs> I made that one. Uh, so it's nice to know that there are a set of arrangements that they can just dig out and if they wanted to do another orchestral show somewhere else they could use those arrangements as well. I think the concert basically was promotion for the Fundamental album. It had that Radio 2 tie-in and they play half the Fundamental tracks as part of the set. When I interviewed Trevor Horn, he told me that they played Dreaming of the Queen specifically because he asked for it to be in the set list. And he also said that he plays the Concrete album in the car and prefers it in many ways to Fundamental. It was a brilliant night and clearly a lot of work went into that one performance. Right, Graham. Quiz time. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) Right, this is a collaboration quiz. Maybe some of their, I don't know, maybe lesser celebrated collaborations. So, see how you do. Okay, well, you know that I do normally need my full inner sanctum of reference materials for any sort of quiz or research. Yeah, well, I know I've I've sprung this on you a little bit. So, question one. Who said this? I love all the songs, but the Pet Shop Boys song got right into my head and made me sob and not many songs do that now i feel i don't need to write a book the record is my autobiography who do you think said that i'm gonna suggest that it's that it is either it feels female to me Mm -hmm. so i'm going to say either tina turner or Shirley Bassey. So, oh, i'm gonna well i was gonna i was gonna settle on shirley Bassey, so i'll say (laughs) shirley Bassey. is that right That's right, you're right, Shirley Bassey. Shirley was talking there about the Pet Shop Boys written track, The Performance of My Life, which was taken from her 2009 album, The Performance. Neil and Chris were particularly proud of this collaboration with Neil telling an interviewer, my mother would have been quite thrilled to hear Shirley Bassey singing the song that Chris and I wrote. Who did Neil write the following about in Smash Hits when he reviewed their Heaven gig in 1982? By the time this band came on stage, it was way past my bedtime, well, after one, and they did little to help stifle the yawns. The lead singer has studied at the David Sylvian School of Vocalising but adds a heavy dub echo and looks very pleased with himself. Tight white reggae-ish rhythms were boosted out by the band and a tape recorder but few of the packed audience danced. So which band, and maybe more specifically, which singer is Neil reviewing there? Well, I'm guessing the line around reggae and Mm -hmm. 1982 suggests Culture Club, perhaps. So maybe are we talking about Boy George? Ah... Correct. <laughs> they really didn't like each other in those uh, early well, days. I don't know. So, but apparently, apparently, George brought this particularly scathing review up with Neil at the 1986 Brit Awards when George presented Pet Shop Boys with Best Single for West End Girls. <laughs> and he also mentions it in his autobiography, which uh, came out in 1995. But it can't have been a lasting grudge because obviously they did collaborate yes, on, on The Crying Game in 1992. Okay. Yep. Two down. Third question. Yep. Who said this about Neil and Chris speaking to Super Deluxe Edition? I went and worked with them and it was just the most joyful collaboration ever because they took everything very lightly and there was almost an album but things were not to be. Things didn't work out and their management gave us difficult problems with the royalties and stuff like that. But I will say to my own credit that I rewrote the lyrics and everything like that but I got no credit for it. I knew when we were finishing it, it wasn't going to be a big hit because it wasn't the Pet Shop Boys sound they gave me. It was an interpretation of a dark disco sound that they thought suited my persona, whereas I wanted something sparkly and bright. But you know, I think it still stands up today. Tricky one. No, I'm, I'm going to... You beat me on that one. It I'm is not a sure. tough one. It is a tough one. That was a quote from the late Pete Burns. Ah, right, of course, yeah. Lead singer of Dead or Alive. Yes. And talking about their 2004 collaboration, Jack and Jill Party. Yeah, that is quite a dark... It is, isn't it? I can imagine him thinking, great, a Pet Shop Boys song. He'll be thinking, it's the the new always on my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that track was the second release on Pet Shop Boys' own old English record label, the first being Atomizers, Hooked on Radiation, which was produced by the KLF's Jimmy Carter. Yes, yes. 
Question four. Yeah. Which live collaboration are Neil and Chris talking about here? Chris said, we hadn't told anybody that we were doing this. So afterwards, we had all sorts of people complaining they didn't know. It was very, very hot and very loud on stage. Neil said, I couldn't remember the words, so I had to have them stuck to a speaker. I think they thought it was quite unprofessional. If you watch the TV broadcast, you can see me looking at them. I think I might know that one. Well, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Is this the killers? Is this Brandon Flowers and their Glastonbury performance in whenever that was <laughs> <laughs> yes yes correct right um, this was Pet Shop Boys joining the Killers on stage for the end of their Glastonbury headline slot in 2019 now Neil mentions people complaining I was one of them I was there Graham <laughs> but I was at the other end of the Glastonbury site watching Hot Chip <laughs> <laughs> getting text messages from people saying I hope you're watching Pet Shop Boys so I was pretty gutted yes well, uh, but um, I've, clearly I've seen my share of um, yeah. Pet Shop Boys. Well, shows. we were watching it on the TV because my, my wife's a big Killers fan and I got very, very excited when those opening drum beats and the lights flashed on the stage. It was like, I, I, I know what that is. I know what that is. <laughs> right. Question five. Yeah. Who said this about working with Neil and Chris? The Pet Shop Boys saved my life. It was 1989. I'd lost my record deal and they gave me a show at Wembley. I'm indebted to Neil and Chris for their love of jazz music. Well, there's only really two people, I guess, in the jazz camp. We, we might rule Liza out, perhaps. Obviously, the other jazz musician. Is it everybody's favourite saxophonist? Not Courtney Love, but Courtney Pine? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's right, Graham. Saxophonist Courtney Pine, who joined them on their 1989 tour. I was a bit surprised by that love of jazz music comment. But I, I did remember that Neil's a big Miles Davis fan, so maybe that's that bit there. Courtney Pine told Chris Heath at the time, I can't really relate Pet Shop Boys to jazz. The tour is the world of the C major chord. I'm more used to the world of a C augmented chord with 13th and 15th extensions. The bit I remember is the Melody Maker review of the Birmingham show, which was written by the Stud Brothers, and they said, and then there was Courtney Pine, who every so often would swagger on stage to ruin one of the 80s most perfect pop songs with unnecessary sax interludes. The man should be imprisoned and his instrument melted down to make a cool-looking exhaust for a hot rod. A bit harsh? Well, I mean, you didn't see that show. Obviously, that is a gig that I actually did go to yeah. that you didn't... And I think that's pretty, pretty <laughs> quite, quite close to my memory of it. He doesn't come out too well out of the Literally book, does he, from that tour as well? Uh, no, not really. But he did perform that brilliant solo on Dusty's Knocking I'm going to say improved. we'll let him off for yeah. that. Yeah, no, yeah, that's, that's, that's all right. That we'll, we'll let him off for that. That's brilliant. OK, you're doing well. Right. Yeah. Who said this about Neil and Chris? I'm flattered and very happy they've agreed to do it. They're so talented. I thought they'd be above it and does. You see, I think I was going to go again. I'm, my just default is Robbie Williams on all of these. So I think that was where I was going to go with that. But... Robbie Ah. Ah. Oh. You see, that, that little twitch that you've got there. Yeah. That suggests... Trying, trying to help. Is that, yeah. It's this yeah. bit. I thought they'd be above it and does and above us but they weren't above us. No, they were below them. They oh. were below them on the bill, weren't yeah, they? It, it is take that, isn't it? Who is it, though? Oh, is it Gary Barlow? No, it's Jason Orange. Oh! <laughs> you see, Gary Barlow wouldn't have said that. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was Jason Orange on Pet Shop Boys being announced as the support act for Take That's Progress yes, Live tour yes. in 2011. I was thinking that they hadn't collaborated with Take That, but I guess technically they did. On, on tour. It's a bit of a stretch of the... Uh, yeah, no, 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 that's all right. No, I, uh... Last one. Last one. I'll try and go out with some sort of semblance of uh, yeah, well, glory. You might, you might know this. So, who are Neil and Chris talking about here? No credit given or permission requested. <laughs> well, I think we all know that, don't we? <laughs> Which collaborator does that refer to? I think that might refer to Drake. You're right. It's the rapper Drake after he interpolated. I've never heard that word before. And now I seem no, to hear it no, all the time. No. After he interpolated lines from West End Girls on his 2023 album track, All the Parties. What did you make of that? Oh, it's, it's, well, it's, well, bizarre, isn't it? It's, I'm going to describe it as awful. Oh, the, tra oh, the track <laughs> is, is horrendous, isn't it? It's I don't I don't I don't really get it anyway. It's this notion of I don't know what interpolated means. I mean, I don't know much about copyright. 
I'm not sure that that would be counted as copyright infringement. I guess he could claim that he's just quoting the song title. I mean, you you have to look at melody for things like this sometimes. There's yeah. no melody there. There's no melody in the whole album, never no. mind on that particular couplet. It's not very nice, though, is it? Because it's clearly no. deliberately using it. I think that, and it does seem to be out of quite out of context for anything else that's on that song. It, that's right. A, it doesn't work or fit within it. And you, you would think, at the very least, he could have kind of reached out beforehand, even if it didn't need any writing credit. But I did think it was a bit of a PR masterstroke. Sending out that two-sentence tweet must have earned them coverage in every international music paper. Yeah, I think they're in some fairly big magazines as well. We're, like we're sort of CNN running and yeah, Bloomberg yeah. and things. Well, let's see how he likes it if they decide to get their own back and interpolate some of his lyrics in their <laughs> next album. <laughs> oh, I hope they don't bother. <laughs> but that PR must have added up to something and must have had some financial worth for them all the same Pet Shop Boys beef with Drake I didn't have that on my uh, 2023 bingo card I don't know about you <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you, you did quite well after that anyway um... yeah to say I'm dreadful at quizzes and... <laughs> we should end Graham with a look at Pet Shop Boys themselves as remixers and they've done quite a bit of remixing in recent years it's seemed to be a bit of a lockdown occupation for them. And earlier this year, Neil mooted the release of Disco 5 in Classic Pop magazine, and it sounds like it's going to have the same concept as Disco 4, which is it's a compilation of remixes they've done for other artists. And he says he's even got a bit of a track listing. But before we speculate about that, I thought we could just have a little bit of a remix history lesson. And what a diverse list it is. And and these are three that didn't make it. So Blur, Girls and Boys, The Bloodhound Gang, Mope, and of course, Fat Lezzers, Jerusalem. (laughs) Can't forget that. You're right, none of those made the grade for Disco 4, which they released in 2007. And that was in itself a compilation of their own recent remixes for other artists. It had their mix of Hello Space Boy, Atomizer, Yoko Ono, Ramstein, Madonna and The Killers. Quite an again, <laughs> quite an eclectic <laughs> bunch. <laughs> plus, plus their own mixes of their own tracks, "I'm with Stupid" and a new version of "Integral," which was even a single of sorts. So, where might they go with Disco Five? What's vying for inclusion on the new remix compilation? Well, like you said, they've actually done quite a lot of remixes recently, so there's actually quite a, a reasonably long list. Paul Weller's "Cosmic Fringes," yeah. Clapton's "Queen of Ice," mm-hmm. Wolfgang Tillman's "Insanely Alive." Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds and Think of a Number. Plus Sassel's Purple Zone. I mean, they certainly remixed that as, as well as producing it. Yeah, you're right. There's there's loads. And if you widen the scope a little more, if you go back in time a little further, you've got a few more mixes you could arguably include. Do you remember they remixed MGMT's Kids? Yeah, I love that. That's never been officially released. I think Neil just sneakily shared it via the official Pet Shop Boys site. The Hidden Cameras, Colour of a Man. Again, that's never been officially released. I think that might be my favourite of all the mixes that they've ever done. I think that should find a, a way out somehow. And then they remixed Lady Gaga's AA, Nothing Else I Can Say. And you've got to hope that they'd find room for one or two of their own remixes of their own tracks. So there's plenty to pick from from there. Dreamland, Leaving, Fluorescent, Did You See Me Coming, or Love Etc. Or maybe even a brand new track or a brand new remix or two. Apparently they were considering an additional single from Hotspot so it'd be great to hear a new version of maybe Willow the Wisp or Happy People I do always like it how Neil always adds his vocal to a remix though yes it's kind of his trademark isn't <laughs> Definitely, it yeah. uh, it's, a bit, you know, it's almost a bit cheeky here's the remix you asked for Madonna you might find I'm now singing on it <laughs> here you go David Bowie you might find I've chopped up Space Oddity and gifted you an extra verse you're welcome <laughs> just zooming back in on that mix that they did for Noel Gallagher which I thought was brilliant but there's supposed to be two more mixes of that knocking around aren't there I wonder when we might get to hear those yes that's right so a According to the album notes on Apple Music, he said, they asked me, how much like the Pet Shop Boys do you want this to sound? I was like, well, let's go full Pet Shop Boys (laughs) and then dial it back a bit. And they sent back three versions that were kind of varying degrees of Pet Shop Boys-ness. The first one was like, oh no, I couldn't put a bucket hat wearing lad through this. That's how he thinks of his own fan base, clearly. He wouldn't be able to sleep at night. The second was a bit less like that. And the third was like, okay, that's what I'm talking about. 
it's a bit like the old creative trick of giving a client two completely out there options so that they feel that they've been through that creative process, <laughs> but everybody knows they're just going to go for the safe option anyway. Uh, it is a bit of a cop-out, though. He, he has basically wimped out, hasn't he? I mean, Neil and Chris have actually said they thought he'd picked the wrong one. He, you're right, he did. He completely wimped out. He couldn't handle it, could he? <laughs> it's the old kind of disco versus rock wars all over again, isn't it? He didn't want his old friends to see him out dancing with the other boys. <laughs> what what a wuss. You know, don't ask for a Pet Shop Boys remix if you're not made of tough enough stuff. <laughs> I mean, dial it back a bit. <laughs> yeah. Cheeky Ken. No doubt this means we'll have to wait for him to put them all out as another one of those record store day releases, mm. which sadly for you means another early morning get yes. up to join the queue and sneaking into the house with a 12 inch shaped box under your coat and that's exactly why we need Disco 5 you know Neil and Chris need to spare us that early record store day queue I'm, I'm getting too old for that now or even better maybe Noel's holding back the timeless classic mix that's the one that we're, we're looking forward one. to get, getting hold of so maybe he's holding it back so he can have his complete Hello Space Boy moment so a standalone single Noel Gallagher with Pet Shop Boys complete with the video with them all in TV performances Bowie didn't decide that Hello Space Boy was two Pet Shop Boys did he? No he was all in <laughs> yeah. I mean in fairness so was Noel's friend Paul Weller yep. you know he went full PSB of course he was a 12 minute opus in three parts bring it on <laughs> Noel needs to take a good hard look at himself he clearly doesn't understand the essence of collaboration he's not like Neil and Chris you don't ask anyone to die it back a bit <laughs> well as Neil sang on in the night and in this situation there's a thin line between love and crime and collaboration so maybe we should let Noel off his crime of ignoring the two remixes and instead celebrate the many collaborations that we do love there's certainly lots of them to enjoy <laughs> Pet Shop Boys In Depth is an independent podcast written and produced by Sykes Payne for F19 Media with music from Paul Jackson. Each episode we're calling out and thanking some of our supporters who've kindly helped us to cover recording and hosting costs. So huge thanks to Christina Guest, Gavin Kagan, Neil Wickens and Peter Britton. Follow us on Twitter at Pod or via our Facebook page for extra content and to be the first to hear about new episodes. You can help keep these podcasts ad-free by buying one of our exclusive in-depth podcast t-shirts. You'll find all the links in the podcast information or on our socials. Please hit follow or subscribe and we'd love it if you wrote us a review.